Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In this series, we'll see the many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece. We'll also be challenged in how we're designed to live out the gospel through the local church. In the third mini-series, Paul calls the Corinthians to live freely and make their choices in life very differently than the world. With Christ as our example, we will learn how to enjoy our freedoms, not just for our own benefit, but for the glory of God and good of others. For more information, please visit www.doxa-church.com. Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians 8, 1-13. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Uh, For the next three weeks, we're going to be asking the question, how should members of a gospel-shaped community exercise our Christian freedom? If it's true that Jesus has really set you free, as Jesus himself said, then we are truly free. The question is, how do we handle our freedom? Now, if you're not a Christian, you might think, well, wait a minute, what do you mean Jesus sets you free? We live in a country where there's lots of freedoms. What are you talking about? And what we, when we say that, when Jesus said that, he meant a variety of things. First of all, he meant we're free from our past defining us. That our past behaviors that we might be ashamed of, wish would go away, are not the things that ultimately define us and are not the things that God knows us for if our faith is in Jesus. Because if our faith is in Jesus, then our life is in Jesus. And if our life is in Jesus, then Jesus' life is our life, which means his righteousness is now our righteousness. And his death on the cross forgives us of our sins, not only cleansing us, but removing the shame that is accompanied with our sin. And so we're free from our past defining us. And we're also free in our present 
Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but rose again on the third day, victorious over Satan's sin and death, giving us the power by his spirit to live a new life today so that we're free from the bondage of sin, we're free from the power of sin, we're free from the darkness of this world, and we can live as children of light. And we're also free to look forward into the future, knowing that our future is secure, that we will be kept till that day when Jesus returns and enjoy forever being with God and all his people in a new heaven and a new earth, and so we don't have fear facing the future. And so there's freedom. And then we're also free from the idea that we think we've got to live a really good life for God to accept us, which a lot of us, start, if, we don't, if we aren't careful, we start to think that Christianity is just a set of rules that we have to live up to or measure, be measured by. And that's empty religion, but Christianity is far different. We're transformed from the inside out, so it's no longer the rules that we keep that make us right before God, but the new heart he's given us as his children. And so we're free. We're really free. But the question is, what do we do with our freedom? What do we do with not only the freedom from our past, present, and future, freedom to live a new life, freedom from rules that primarily just seem to be a heavy burden on our back? If we're not careful, we misuse our freedom in ways that actually lead us back into the old life or lead others back into the old life. Now, the tendency for all of us is to fall off on one side or the other of the quote-unquote gospel horse. What do I mean by that? Uh, some of us fall off the side of license where we go, man, we can do anything we want. We're free. Let's just you know, throw out all you know, limitations. And, and unfortunately, we engage in our license in a way that not only hurts us, but hurts others. The other side of the horse is legalism where because we know how bad sin is that, that we can look at the cross and see what it costs Jesus to die for our sins so we want nothing to do with it. If we're not careful, we start to create a whole bunch of extra rules or laws outside of what the Bible teaches to prevent ourselves from getting even close to falling into sin. And all of us tend to fall off one side or the other. <clears throat> Some of us love the freedom, but we don't love people in our freedom. Others of us love rules because it makes us feel secure and safe so we don't get close to sinning. And God wants neither of those extremes for us. He wants us to live with freedom and have his very law written on our hearts, not somehow written from outside on top of us. So as we think about freedom, think about your tendency to go to one extreme or the other. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at what gospel form freedom does for us and the tendency for us to misuse it or forget to engage it. <clears throat> now, in the church that we're referring to in Corinth, they were struggling with this newfound freedom. In particular, uh, they were struggling around the uh, issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. So, just a little background. In Corinth, Meat was offered to a god in the form of a sacrifice, uh, and, and that, that sacrifice that was given would then be eaten in the temple as an act of worship to that god. <clears throat> well, there also opportunity to eat that meat uh, outside of the actual worship experience in these little courts or, or gathering spaces around the temple. It was almost like their, their uh, fine dining of the day. 
you wanted to go get a really good steak, you'd go to one of these restaurants that was connected to a temple, and if you were connected uh, in, in a particular trade or business, uh, then you would go to one of those quote-unquote restaurants or clubs to receive this meat with a bunch of people that you were probably doing business with. So they'd have birthday parties, anniversaries, celebration of a new child, maybe a, a big moment in, in the history of you know, the people there, and they would celebrate these parties together that with, with meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, but they weren't engaging in the meal as though it was an act of worship. They were just having a meal with a bunch of probably colleagues or friends. And to not engage in that meal would be, in some ways, a, a, kind of, a kind of slam in the face of the people that you're friends with. And in a few weeks, we're going to talk about uh, how we should engage intentionally with our freedoms for the sake of those who don't yet know Jesus. Uh, today, we're going to talk about how we limit our freedoms for those who already do in such a way that we don't lead them in to sin. Because the other way you would get meat is you would buy it at a market and that would be the third way that you'd get the meat. You'd get it either as an act of worship or at one of the, the feasts around the temple. But whatever's left over would then be sold in the market. So you can imagine when they're having a lot of feasts, the price of meat drops. And therefore, those who are not nearly as uh, uh, kind of well-to-do could afford to buy it. But they didn't know when they were buying it whether it was sacrificed to an idol or not. You just didn't know unless you, of course, asked to find out. And so that's kind of the narrative of what's going on here. And there was a group of Christians who were probably more wealthy because they were being invited to a lot more of the parties. Meat was a normal part of their feasting and eating. There were a group of them that were probably more wealthy and likely more educated and probably more informed about the freedoms the gospel provides for them. And they were saying, like, why can't we just all eat meat? Why do we have to restrain ourselves? Because there was a group in the church that were also a little bit more restricted saying, I don't think we should ever eat meat. What about if we eat meat and we participate in this form of sacrifice or ritual or worship? I don't know that I can handle that. And so there was a a weaker or non-informed group in the church that because just recently, remember this church is only about three years old, just recently they were one of those people in the temple eating the meat as an act of worship to a false god. And so their conscience is is at a place where anytime they'd eat meat, they would be brought right back to that moment of worship and they couldn't eat the meat without slipping into worship of a false god. And so you've got these two groups in the church, some of you very free to do it, who are saying, why can't we all just do it? Get over it, you know? You weaker brothers, grow up. And then you got the weaker brothers and sisters going, we just can't. This is not okay. And in some ways, they're wanting to say there should never be allowance for eating of meat. And that's the tension that we find ourselves in. You might be asking, how in the world, Jeff, is this relevant to our church? Like, we're not worried about eating meat. We're not, none of us have eaten meat sacrificed to an idol. Maybe you have, though. You may come from, because around the world, if you, if you, you know, more and more, and I don't see it as much in this gathering as I probably will the next gathering, more and more we are seeing an international representation in our church that is coming from lots of contexts, and so this might be exactly what you came out of. Who knows? But for many of us who grew up in this context, that's not the case. And so we might ask, how in the world does this apply? Well, we may not address specifically the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols in our own lives, but I do think we need to address the issue of us who have a lot of biblical knowledge and understand the freedoms we have in Christ. Learning how to use that knowledge and use that freedom 
in a way that thinks of others more important than ourselves. The mantra of our culture, and I know I'm gonna date myself a little bit, but this is the nine o'clock, so you know this song. I'm free to do what I want any old time. Right, that is the mantra. In fact, in our culture, especially in the United States, the highest value is the individual's pursuit of freedom and happiness. In some cases, at the cost of everyone else. And so I think we need this. In fact, in our context, people don't tend to ask the question of should or ought, but rather can. Instead of should I eat this, or should I purchase this, or should I engage in this, we ask the question, can I eat this? Can I engage in this? Can I purchase this? In other words, what, do I, what can I do, not what should I do? Thinking of others more important than myself. And most often, we don't tend to think of the collective implications of our decisions. We primarily think about the personal implications of our decisions. I mean, think about this last week. How many decisions did you make and before you made the decision, you stopped and thought, how is this gonna affect people in the world if I buy this product? How is this gonna affect my neighbors if I engage in this activity? How is this gonna affect my roommates if I choose to do this particular thing? How is this gonna affect my spouse or my kids or my coworker? How often when we make a decision are we thinking about the impact it has on others? If we're not careful, our freedom gives us license to do things that ultimately hurt other people. Many, many years ago, my uh, dad finally let me drive our boat. I remember growing up, going out on the boat fishing and skiing. I grew up in Michigan, lots of lakes everywhere. And my, you know, my dad taught each one of the four boys, I'm second oldest, uh, how to drive the boat. You know, at one point he taught us all the boat laws and boat safety and all that. And of course, you know, said, whenever you get out, you know, you're gonna take the boat out, always check the weather report and always check the gas tank. Two things to always think about when you're going out into, the, into a lake. And so, sure enough, I get the freedom to finally go out on my own with my friends. Uh, we're not going fishing, we're going skiing. So I get all my, my buddies and their girlfriends and we're out in the boat. I'm in high school at this point. And um, we're, we're headed out into, you have to, basically you have to leave the harbor where my dad kept his boat, go through one lake, go through another little channel into another lake that was really good skiing lake because it was a lot calmer. And so we're out skiing and having a great time and all of a sudden I see a, a little cloud forming uh, just in the distance. And it was in that moment that I remembered I didn't check the weather report. And all of a sudden, the, the cloud becomes a, goes from a small cloud to a big cloud to lightning. And I've got my friend Sean out on the ski, and I'm pulling him. And uh, I say, I, I'm pointing at the cloud, and he looks behind him. He goes, keep going, keep going. So I'm like, all right. And he's a bit of a crazy guy. So we just keep skiing, and the, the storm is catching up with him. And pretty soon, it's raining so hard, it feels like hail. Uh, I don't, you know, we don't get a lot of that rain here in Seattle, even though everybody thinks it rains here all the time. It's not usually rain that's like really heavy, heavy rain. But this is one of those heavy rains where everybody dove underneath the, the, the front of the boat just to get out of it because it hurts so much as it was landing. And I'm yelling at my friend, you got to come in. He goes, no, keep going. Let's break, make it through this. And so I keep going. And then also I look down and I remember the second thing my dad always told me to pay attention to. And that was that the gas gauge was on empty and all of a sudden the boat just just went to a stop in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a lake, 
with my friend out in the water and everybody else hiding underneath the boat. And it was in that moment as I looked back, I didn't think of it at the, at the moment as I should have, that I realized I had not been thinking about anybody but me. And now I put everybody in danger in a, a situation that could be really bad. Now, thankfully, we, we got out the oars and we started to paddle in to the, the channel, put the boat in. Unfortunately, it happened to be a holiday, so there was no gas station open. So now I'm stuck in a channel. I've got to call my dad and tell him we need help. And he says, did you check the weather report? I said, of course not. <laughs> did you check the gas gauge? They're like, no, I didn't. And all I was thinking about was my freedom. All I was thinking about was I finally have the chance to take the boat out without dad and do whatever I want. And in my freedom, I forgot just basic principles of thinking of others more than yourself. I, don't, I know that's kind of a fun story. Thankfully, my dad came and he was gracious. And I learned a lot about grace by how my dad handled the worst situations where I disobeyed or got myself in trouble and how he handled himself. So I, I'm thankful for that. But I, I will say this, at times, I was not careful to, to, to be, be mindful that I should never take advantage of my dad's grace. And I think for a lot of us, if we're not careful, you've been in the faith for a long time, you can go, well, God's gonna forgive me, it doesn't matter. And what you do is you end up destroying the very nature of what grace was meant to do. It was meant to set you free to love people. It was not meant for just you alone. It was meant that you would bless others with the freedom you found in Christ. And so Paul, over the next three weeks, as we look at uh, chapters 8 and 10 in particular, Paul's going to address three key questions. One, how do we limit our freedoms for the sake of the weaker or lesser knowledgeable Christian? That's what we're going to talk about today. Next week, how do we personally avoid idolatry while engaging in the practices of our culture with freedom? Three, and that'll be the third week, how do we engage our Christian freedom for the good of those who don't yet know the grace and freedom of Jesus? So we're gonna look at those three uh, topics as we look at this together. First of all, today, how do we engage our freedom or even limit it in such a way that shows that we love people with our freedom? That our freedom was meant to love, not just to serve self. The first thing I think we need to recognize in this passage is that true knowledge, real knowledge of God produces love. Paul says this in verse one. <clears throat> now concerning food, offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, quote unquote, puffs up, but love builds up. So he's quoting them. Every time there's a quote in the text, he's generally quoting a letter that, part of the letter that they wrote him. In this case, they had said to him, hey, everybody knows, Paul, that idols are just idols. They're not real gods. They don't have the power that our God has. And besides, food is just food. And the stomach's just stomach. And, and so Jesus, in fact, they didn't say this in the letter, or maybe they did, but we know Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man or a woman that corrupts them, but what comes out of a man. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so you could have easily imagined them going like, this meat doesn't corrupt us. So why can't we just all engage in it? But what they forgot is that Jesus didn't just say it's not what goes into a man that corrupts him, but it's what comes out of him. It's what's in the heart. And so Paul wants to get after the heart. It's, this isn't just an issue of what can we do and what can't we do, but what's the attitude in which we approach our freedoms. So Paul wants to address their attitude, not their approach to food. 
Now, I want to be really clear. I've said this a few times in this series. Paul is not anti-intellectual. He's a brilliant thinker. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows that knowledge, especially biblical knowledge, is a good thing. But he also knows, by his own experience, that knowledge without love puffs up. That it, it doesn't build up, necessarily. Fact, this idea of puffed up means that your knowledge can lead to a self that's inflated. It can lead to a narcissistic approach to life where you go, the more I know, the better I am, and therefore it leads to a posture that looks down on everybody else who doesn't know what you know. And Paul wants to confront that to, understand, to help us understand this kind of knowledge is just hot air. That's all it is. If it doesn't build people up, if it doesn't love well, then it's empty. Or as love builds up, it thinks of others more important than themselves. It's, considered, it's concerned not just with our freedom, but how our freedom and decisions affect others. I, I'll tell you, I far too often in the church witnessed Christians who have unbelievable amounts of Bible knowledge be the most ungracious, unloving people around. If you're not a Christian in the room, I wanna ask you to forgive us for knowing something that we aren't willing to do. Knowing the word of God and not being transformed by the very nature and principles of what our God is like. That he is a God of love and grace and compassion. In fact, I wanna say this, family, I'm concerned with some of you who insist that you need to have a Bible study but have no time to love or serve anybody. That, that make more and more time to sit around and talk about God's word but are not willing to obey the very word you like to talk about. In fact, if, if you're right now saying, I just don't have time for people. I don't have time to serve. I don't have time to be, get to know my neighbors. I don't have time to be in the life of people who need the love of God. But then you tell me in the same breath, man, I got a lot of Bible studies I gotta get to this week. I'm gonna tell you, stop going to Bible studies and start serving people who need to see the Bible lived out in everyday life. Amen? I mean, I was with someone this last week and they're like, I just don't have any time for this community and being with people and serving. And then the next breath, they told me, hey man, I got this really great Bible study I'm gonna do Thursday night. I'm like, you just told me you don't have time. Maybe you needed to take the slot for Thursday night Bible study and make it a slot for Bible practice where you go live a life of love because Paul is making it really clear. If you have a lot of knowledge but you don't have a lot of love, your knowledge is, is confused. In fact, he goes on to say, you might not actually have knowledge. Verse two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You, you know that your knowledge of God is true knowledge by the direction and affection of your love. I want to say that again. You know that your knowledge of God is true knowledge by the direction and affection of your love. Remember, Paul, I want, I want to just point this out. Paul doesn't say anyone who knows, which you might expect, anyone who knows God loves God. He doesn't say that. He says anyone who loves God, he is known by God. Now that's really important because he's giving us the order of salvation here. He's saying 
God first knew you before you knew him. God chose you before you chose him. God loved you before you loved him. God was gracious to you while you were still a sinner in rebellion to God. And because of that, you should have no pride in your knowledge because your knowledge was really a gift given to you by God. And if you have any knowledge of God, it's merely a grace of God that you might have it. And therefore, you don't get puffed up in what you know. You're humbled by the fact that the one who knows you gave you knowledge of him. Amen? And so what Paul's trying to say is, if God's done this to you, then you should know him. Now, here's the thing. If God has made himself known to you, and this is really important here, when Paul says, uh, anyone known by God, he's not talking about just God knowing your name and knowing your past, and though he does know all that, or knowing the number of hairs in your head, or knowing what you did yesterday. He knows all that. He's, he's talking about knowledge that, that really kind of is similar to a marital intimacy, that if you are known by God, it means God has actually acquainted himself intimately with you. To the degree at which he's poured out his love into your heart by his spirit, Romans 5, 5 says. And that John 1, 1 John 4 says that those of us who are born of God have God abiding in us and his love is perfected in us. So John goes on to say, you can't say you know God who is love and yet not love your brother. In fact, if you choose not to love your brother or sister, you, can't, you have to ac accept the fact that you probably don't know God who is love like you think you do. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, if you think you have knowledge of God, but you don't use that knowledge to love one another, you don't really know as you think you know. Because if you knew him, you would love not only him, but others. Now, what about eating meat? In this case, let's go after that. Verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Again, quoting their letter. And there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Stop there. The more restrictive party, probably those who didn't see the freedom they had in the gospel to engage in eating meat are thinking Paul's going to confront them. He's gonna tell them they're wrong, but instead Paul does the opposite. He says, no, actually, those of you who see the freedom to eat, you're right, you know, to a degree. Your theology is right, at least in the idea that these little gods, these little lords are really not God. And, and this food really is something God created and can be set apart for good things. So he does correct that a bit, and he, he corrects it in a particular way, consisting, uh, basically contrasting their gods and their lords with our God. And he goes on in verse six, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for all, for, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So this particular passage, if you're Jewish, you immediately went back to where? Anybody know? You went back to the law. The five, first five books of the Old Testament, particular, probably you went back to Exodus and Deuteronomy, where the Israelites were taught to recite the Shema on a regular basis. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And so what is he doing? He's saying, yes, that's true, our God is one. But Paul takes it a little further and says, I wanna make sure you know who that God is who is one. 
And he lets us know that that God is not only God the Father, the author and aim of all creation, but Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the agent of all creation. If you're, if you're here and you've ever wondered, does the scriptures make it clear that Jesus is God? Here's one of those passages. There's many of them, but there's one. And, and you might go, well, Jeff, it says God and Lord. What does that mean? Well, let's, take a look. let's just make sure we look at what the Bible teaches about God and Lord. Psalm 136, verse two through three. And now you can just see this all over the Bible, but I'm just gonna give you one. This Psalm says, give thanks to the God of gods. You can hear the echoing here of Paul as Paul echoes this Psalm in a lot of ways. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Notice that Paul uses both God and Lord to refer to our God. Now, Paul is saying that about God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, and in doing so, he's saying God the Father is God, Jesus the Lord is God, and yet there's one God. I'm not going to spend much more time talking about the theology of the Trinity, if you want to talk about that later, because I didn't talk about the Spirit yet, but that's all the way through all this. Uh, but, but what Paul is wanting them to see in this particular case is, first of all, there is one God. There is. And all the other gods and lords submit to the God and the Lord. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Lord. Okay? That's, that's one thing he's saying. Second, to affirm that God the Father and Jesus Christ are overall changes how we view everything. Because it means he's even over the meat in this case. He's Lord of that. He's God over the little gods, the little lords. Now, one of the things Christians were known for saying, because they were in a context where regularly they'd say, Caesar is Lord, and the Christians would go, no, Jesus is Lord, right? And so that he's also giving them a little bit encouragement to stand up in the face of the idolatry of the culture that wants to raise up leaders as though they're gods, Instead, to look to Jesus who's above all. He is the Lord of lords. But third, why is, what, what Paul is doing here is he's wanting us to understand that we should handle our freedom in such a way that we realize God is God of us. That everything we do, we do with God over all of it. That he gets to claim right over your life because he created you and you exist for him and, and you exist for the purposes of Jesus. Whether you're a Christian or not, you, you may not know this, but God spoke the world into existence and through his son Jesus brought it forth. In pre-incarnate, Jesus was the word made flesh through whom all things were created, as John tells us and Colossians tells us and Ephesians tells us. And then fourth, the reason why Paul is saying this is because he wants them to see the mutual deference between God the Father and God the Son, that the way they work together and think of the other and how Jesus then did the Father's will should be for us a way in which we think about the community God's given us. If God the Father and God the Son can live in deference to one another and God the Son specifically can submit himself to God the Father's will for our good, then that should shape our community and how we live if we are his people. Amen? Okay. So that's, that's a lot. I want to keep going. Second, not only does love our freedom should engage us to love one another, but that love that we have for one another, if we really know God, would lead us to use our freedom, intentionally steward our freedom for the good of others. Paul goes on, verse seven. However, not all possess this knowledge. He's affirming that, that that's true. Not all, not all possess this knowledge. What they said earlier, all possess, he's going, no, no, no. 
Not everybody does. Stop being so arrogant and thinking everybody knows what you know. And then he goes on, for some, through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol. Their conscience is, being, is weak. It's defiled. So what he wants to say is, you guys clearly have not been listening to each other. You're sitting in your seats as an individual, a consumer of the preaching of God's word on a Sunday, but you haven't taken the time to get to know who else is in the room and find out if they have the same thing you do, if they know what you know, experience what you experience, and are where you're at in your faith. And if we're not careful in a highly individualistic culture, we can come here and consume for our own personal good and never get to know anybody else, and there we sit, we sit in a place of ignorant arrogance. And that's not what I want for us, church. I want us to learn to love one another. I want us to live in a family where we think of each other as brothers and sisters and like parents would do in their own household, they say, I'm willing to know my kids well enough to know what each thing we do and how it affects them and therefore restrain certain freedoms that I might have as an adult for those who are younger. So Paul wants to, wants to say to them, you, you act like you all are the same and you're not. And in so doing, you, you as quote unquote the more mature, the more biblically informed are acting as though your knowledge and your particular position in life should dictate what everybody else does. But the Bible's really clear. Those of us who are more mature, more knowledgeable should regularly give up our rights and our interest for those who are younger in the faith. Jesus told us to leave the 99 sheep for the lost one. Regularly when I interact with missional community leaders, they say like, well, you know, what if we, every week we're having a meal and our plan is to always have a Bible study, but we got some people in our group who like to bring their friends along who don't know Jesus and when they show up, like what are we supposed to do? They don't want to have a Bible study and I always tell them, leave the 99 for the lost one. You change the agenda that you had that would please your own desires for the sake of the weaker. That, that's what we do family. We don't think of ourselves first and foremost and what we got out of it. We think about how we can take what we've been given and give it away in a way that someone else can receive it. Some of you, it was a great ladies worship, eh? Wasn't that awesome? But some of you walk out here and you're like, yeah, it's too loud or I don't like the style or whatever it may be. And I, I know that we all have our own preferences. But I just want to encourage you, this is not about you. At the end of the day, we're doing our very best to provide a variety of experiences so that lots of different people can engage in worship in different ways because we want to think of others more important than ourselves. And so that's just going to be the way it is. If you're wanting something to always fit your preference every week, this is the wrong church for you. Just to be really clear. We want to do whatever we can to think of others more important than ourselves and even in doing so to learn how to die to ourselves. So there's a lot of things we might have to give up. Paul continues, just to be clear, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And that goes both ways because Paul's trying to say, eating it doesn't make us sinful, but not eating it doesn't somehow make us less then. If we give up our rights for someone else, it's not as though we're like, man, I'm missing out. No, he's going, no, no, the food isn't what commends you to God. It's not what makes you righteous. It's not, it's not your actions. It's not your works that make you righteous before God. It's Jesus and his work and his actions that make you right before God, which allows you and I to hold loosely to our practices because we know ultimately our practices are not what make us righteous. But Jesus does. 
And when we really believe that, not only will we hold loosely to things that we want to be about, but we'll also think about others and how we can engage practically in serving them and engage in the world in a way that begins to give them a picture of what it looks like when Christians both engage with our freedoms and disengage for the sake of others. And I'm telling you that if there's anything that the culture around us needs right now is a, pe- a people that are humble, selfless, and willing to give for the sake of others and not always need to be right in front of the public uh, platform, right, of social media. Amen? I mean, I think that needs to happen in the church. We need to be the most humble, servant-hearted, selfless people who are not out to just fight for our rights, but rather are willing to lay down our rights for the sake of the other. Stephen T. Um says, when the gospel begins to transform our life, it uncovers former idols for what they were. And I'll tell you this, man, over the next few weeks, some of you are gonna go, man, I worship things I didn't know I worship. Things are way too important to me. I'm not willing to give them up. And he says, what were they? They were lifeless, beingless, substanceless frauds. Christians cannot find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in the consumption of sumptuous food. However, once people understand this, they're able to fully enjoy food for the creational blessing that it is. See, when food is the ultimate, you can't really enjoy it, but when it's a gift given from the ultimate, then you can enjoy it unto him. He goes on and says, once we understand this, we can properly consume the stuff of culture as something that points us to the gospel. Our rights and our privileges in Christ are far greater than we could ever imagine, which should lead us as he goes on. We're so free that it ought to make us a little nervous because we can enjoy all things unto God. But it should also cause us to properly, and I'd say soberly, think of ways to use our freedom for God's glory. We should be sober-minded about the freedoms we have, so thankful that we have them, but also sober-minded for how we use them. And he goes on and says, this sober-mindedness should lead us to think of others. Verse nine, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And what he wants us to say is personal freedoms are not only personal. Personal freedoms are collective in nature and how you express them. Because every single thing you do shapes the culture you live in. You might, you might be sitting in the room going like, man, our world is a mess. Look at where it's going. But you contributed to it. And you go, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. Okay, all of us did in some way or another. Because if there's any country that's shaped by the people, ruled by the people, it's the United States of America. So we're looking at our country going, man, what happened to it? You ought to say, what happened to us? What did we do? What did we fail to do? How do we use our rights in a way that hurt others? How do we begin to think of ourselves more important than others? And I'd say right now we're seeing the epitome of narcissism at its height in our culture. And it's everywhere. So don't just point the finger one way. Point it every way. And so there's not a time, I think, where we need to more seriously take this passage into our life and apply it than today. We should regularly ask ourselves, how is my freedom exercise affecting other people? Three things I want you to ask, family, regularly. How is my freedom leading to glorifying God? We are called doxa. That's the Greek word for glory. That, what that is is that's the invisible attributes of God made visible, and particularly most fully through Jesus, but now through his church. That's who we are. We're doxa. We want to make sure we display the truth of God that you can't see, but now you can see in Jesus and now his body, the church. And so I want you to be asking regularly, if I engage in this activity, how will it tell the truth about what God is like to the world? 
Second, how will this activity that I engage in lead to another's good? In fact, I want to do it, ask these questions in this order. If I engage this activity, how will it glorify God? How will it do good to others? And then third, how will it lead to my joy and satisfaction? Because true freedom exercise that glorifies God and does good to others will give you the greatest joy possible. Always, always, always. Now, I want to make sure that I clarify, because this, this passage has been so wrongly applied so many times. This passage is not talking about moralistic people who have a strong preference for a particular way of living, not eating, not drinking, not dancing, not whatever it was. The, uh, the place I grew up in, in the Midwest, it was like Christians couldn't drink, couldn't dance, couldn't go to movies, couldn't go to rock shows, even Christian rock shows, right? And certainly couldn't smoke, of course, none of them must have known Charles Spurgeon, who loves cigars. But anyway, so that, that's what I grew up in. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not, he's not saying that there are some people in the church who get to forcibly apply their own personal ethical standards on everybody else so it's easy for them to live that out in their own life. It's not what he's saying. He's not talking about someone who's easily offended by somebody else's behavior. He's talking about someone who will fall into sin if you engage in that behavior with them. That's what he's talking about. I remember I was, at a, I was leading at a, a church, I won't say where at one point, and the senior pastor struggled with lust in particular and looking at pornography and had to share that with his elders and they put a lot of standards in place and rules in place to keep him from walking into sin and one of them was he couldn't go to rated R movies. He liked to go to movies all by himself and that didn't always go well for him. And unfortunately then he applied that whole standard to the entire staff and said all of us couldn't see rated R movies. And I was just like, I, I, you don't get to impose your personal standard for your own struggle on everybody else who maybe doesn't struggle with the same thing. So that's not what it's talking about, okay? He goes on to clarify, so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. In other words, you're leading them in a way that's destroying their life. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So certainly I wasn't gonna go with that senior pastor and encourage him to go see a rated R movie with me, right? Nor would I sit down with an alcoholic and offer them a drink. Nor if some of you have come out of a lifestyle of going to clubs so you can hook up with somebody afterwards, would I wanna encourage you to go to a club on Friday night with me? Not that I do, just to be clear. <laughs> okay? I mean, there, there are ways to apply this that we gotta think through. That... that like if, if I'm inviting a Muslim family over for dinner, I pay attention to what I put on the table. Same with a Jewish family, which my kids, a lot of their friends are either one of those backgrounds. And so I have to think about the food we put on the table so as not to cause their conscience to somehow stumble. Now some of you are going like, I, I don't want to limit my freedom. I want to have the freedom to eat or drink or watch, or engaging anything I want, whenever I want. And I would say then you're a slave. Because if you love your freedom more than you love people, then your freedom has got a mastery over you. It's become far too important. So how do we realign? How do we bend our freedoms and love for others? How do we move towards an over-individualized understanding of our rights towards a communalized expression of them that thinks of others more important than ourselves? How do we move from an inward bent of rights to a bent outward in love? How do we get free from what we think we're 
free to in, but we're really slaves to. How do we set ourselves free? And I would say, we have to look at Jesus. You know I was gonna go there, right? I just had to go there. Because Christ's love compels us. His example motivates us. The way he lived changes us. We, we remember, as Paul is saying, that this brother or sister is one for whom Christ died. That that's the value of their life before God the Father. And if that's how much he values them, we ought to value them as well to the degree at which we would be willing to lay down our life for them as, 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 as Christ did for us. And that the very reason we have the freedoms and privileges that we have is because Jesus, who had all glory and all freedom and all privilege, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, that Jesus, who is as free as anybody's ever been free, allowed himself to be bound up and beaten for our sins so that we could go free. That Jesus, who is the, the, clearly the stronger brother, became the weaker brother so that we could become the stronger brothers and, Christ, and sisters in Jesus. That, that we look at the example of Christ and we realize that whenever we've done this in a way that doesn't think about others as important as self, it's very likely that we've disparaged the very person and work of Jesus. And that's why he says, you didn't just sin against them, you sinned against him when you did it. And so we should look at the, the person of Christ and go, thank you, Jesus, for giving everything up for me so that I, weak in my sin, enslaved to its brokenness, would be set free and cleansed and made new so that I could live a new life. And because you did it for me, I'll do it for them. Jesus didn't die to save solitary individuals to live solitary lives, thinking primarily about their solitary freedoms. He saved us to be a community of faith that loves one another in such a way that it shows the Father's love and the Son's love for the world. That's why we do this. And that's why Paul ends saying, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, if any of my behaviors would lead someone to sin that would begin to break down the very good work that God has done in their life, then I will never eat meat, speaking hyperbolically, this is hyperbole, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, he's saying, it's always more important to restrict my freedom for the sake of someone else, always. And if that means I can no longer do whatever I used to feel free to do for the sake of another being set free or being protected by a brother or sister who's stronger, then I will do that. Family, I wanna encourage you this week to ask, what have you been doing with your rights? What have you been doing with your freedoms? How is it affecting the people in your life? Are you willing to restrict yourself so that another who's weaker might actually go free? Let's pray God helps us with that. Father, we come to you. We thank you that you've made us free, that it's not our behavior that makes us somehow righteous before you, but it's Jesus' behavior that does that. But because of that, we want to be free to live a life of righteousness. We want to live a life that looks like Jesus. We want to love others more than ourselves. So Lord, help us to do that for your glory, others' good, and ultimately our joy at the end. And we know that the greatest joy we could ever have is to live for you and others. Help us by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.